Welcome to the latest episode of Technologists Who Give a Shit. I'm Kit. Another interviewer, John. Say hi, John. G'day. And our special guest, Joey. Hello. Joey has actually appeared at our meetup a while ago. He gave an excellent talk about how he transitioned from working as a quality assurance engineer to now being a data scientist. And we thought it would be good to get him in for the podcast so everyone around the world can hear about his journey. Joey, can you tell us a little bit about what your career was like? Maybe starting from, I know you did a psychology degree back in the day and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, wow, that's going back a long way. So, <laughs> uh, I won't tell you how long, I won't show up my age. Uh, but yeah, so, so my background is actually in psychology. And then I haven't, I started working for a organizational psychology company, ended up getting poached by the IT team because I was really good at finding problems. <laughs> Had about a, a, a 10 year stint as a software tester. And then I decided to take a more intentional approach with my career because while software testing was a good career for me, I didn't really choose it. And I'd always kind of had a, I guess, a bit of an affinity with like playing around with data. Whenever I'd, I'd, I'd have to like track down a problem, I'd really like kind of fiddling around with SQL and databases and stuff. So, And also kind of the idea of helping with the safe release of artificial uh, artificial intelligence really appealed to me as well. So I decided to start studying data science. Well, actually, the first the first course I did was Andrew Eng's, what's, what's it called? I think it's... The uh, Coursera course. The Coursera course, mm. written in Octave, I believe. I've heard about it, but I've never done it. Yeah. yeah. Very famous. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, did that. Then I finished it, and I thought to myself, does anyone really use Octave? <laughs> so I started doing a, a course through University of Michigan that, that was in Python. It was a data science specialization. And kind of in the middle <clears> of doing that, started building up a portfolio of projects, which was a, a study in an underage drinking in, in like there's some public, publicly available data sets. So I just tried to create a portfolio piece from that. And while all that was going on, I managed to find a job with Datara where I'm working at the moment. Hopefully that wasn't too big of a whirlwind. <laughs> mm, yeah, I think there's a few points that we'll dive into there. To start off with, you mentioned safe release of AI, and I know that's a bit of a focus area of effective altruism. I also know you're a member of Effective Altruism Sydney. Can you tell us about your connection with EA and maybe how that informed your choice to stop your old career? Yeah, so like when I, at, at the time, I decided to start making these changes. I was working for a vehicle financing company. And so I started realizing that I'm kind of coming to work every day and I'm helping to put more cars on the road. And it didn't really seem like a, a great way to, to help the environment. And so that was kind of like one of the levers that was pushing me to, to change careers. Also, I guess around that time as well, trying to think about what, like how, how can I make a difference in the world? And after asking a few, a few friends, I kind of landed on 80,000 hours, which mm -hmm. is some people might know it as, are, are they related to effective altruism? Yeah. They are, mm -hmm. they, yeah. Um, so I took a few quizzes there and they, they kind of indicated that my interest would be a good fit for the safe release of artificial intelligence, which I like to explain to people as developing a, an artificial intelligence that won't wipe out humanity. Mm. And so that sounded very exciting. And that's kind of what got me into the, into like studying this further. Mm. But I think 
I don't quite have the mental horsepower to contribute to the field. So <laughs> I'm, more, I'm more likely to, I guess, not, not really contribute on the research front, but I mean, you need, you need a lot of mental horsepower wherever you go, I guess. <laughs> but I guess in terms of abstract thinking and stuff, uh, it probably didn't, didn't suit me as much. Yeah, it does seem pretty intense, some of the work that OpenAI does. Other organisations like that, pretty high bar. Seems like you have to have a PhD and 20 years of experience in mm. machine learning before you can even get a job. That's it. Can you tell us more about the transition that you made? Because you, you weren't just doing these courses in your spare time while you were still working for the vehicle financing company. You stopped your stopped working there for a bit and decided to give it a crack. Yeah, sure. So I'm not sure how far how far back I should go because this whole transition kind of started long before I actually left the company. All right. So I guess it was it was kind of like around early 2018 when, when I started realizing that probably not going to be at this company for a long time. So what I started doing was I started kind of building a bit of a runway. So instead of kind of investing in the stock market, basically not, not putting that into the stock market, just keeping it in cash. So I've got a, a nice little runway worth of savings. Mm-hmm. And so once that runway hit about, I think it was about six months worth of, like a comfortable six months worth of, worth of uh, runway, I started thinking about leaving. And from the, from, the, from the point that I actually developed the runway and actually making the decision, I think it was about a month, I guess. Hmm. And because I still wasn't completely sure because it was, they were paying me relatively well and hmm. the work was kind of easy. But I also kind of figured that if I don't take this extreme action, then I will possibly just keep doing what I've always been doing. Hmm. Maybe never finish this course. Hmm and just get too comfortable and just kind of coast along. Mm. Whereas by, it wasn't, wasn't, I don't think it was a stupid risk. Like, I mean, because I had the, I had the, the savings there, but mm. it was a risk. Mm. And I think it provided just enough fear to, <laughs> to kind of get my ass into gear. Mm. And because if I didn't make it work, then <laughs> I don't know what I was going to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. You really flung yourself into it. You immersed yourself in the learning process. Did you consider going part-time instead and learning part of the way or you felt like to really embrace it, you needed all of your mental horsepower going into learning? As, as in going part-time at the old job? Yeah. Yeah, so I was I was actually kind of thinking, I was basically, when, when I went in to resign, I was prepared for a fight. Like I thought, I thought, they, were, I thought they were basically going to say like, um, they were going to try all these things to keep me and stuff like that because um, a, lot of, a lot of people in our company had left mm. and I was kind of like a, a key person, like mm. holding the keys to a lot of kingdoms. Mm. And so I kind of went into my boss at the time and I said, this is like, this is my plan. There, there was a few things that had to fall into place, but um, this is probably what's going to happen. Mm. And he goes, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, I guess you like, I mean, I, I can understand, I can definitely understand that things have changed and yeah, you're, you're not happy here. So we definitely don't want to keep people around that, that unhappy, no matter how key they are. So, and so like I had initially planned like as a fallback position to say, you know what, if you really want to keep me, <laughs> like l- maybe, maybe I can work three days a week, but on the same salary. And, and, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, it, it never came to that. <laughs> so, um, and in the end, I think it was probably... I wasn't, I wasn't, I was in a privileged position that I didn't really need to work part-time. And so I just kind of figured you can make it work part-time, but it's going to, it's going to take longer. Mm. So I just kind of figured the longer that I'm here, the longer I'm contributing to this, to, to a cause that I don't really believe in, which is right. putting, more vehicle, mm. putting more vehicles on the road. Mm. So may as well just have a clean break mm. and get into 
work that I find more meaningful quicker. Mm. It's like, like a Band-Aid. Right off! Yeah, that's right. That's right. Right mm. off. And so it probably <clears throat> seems like a more scary... It probably seems like a more scary prospect as I'm talking about it, but the the day that I actually resigned, I just felt so refreshed and enlivened. And I, I still remember the first day that, the first Monday, where I didn't have to go to work and I'm just going to like concentrate fully on this data science. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing, what was I doing at the time? It was like a, applied text mining, which is like the precursor to NLP and stuff, mm-hmm. which was super interesting. And mm-hmm. I was like, I get to concentrate on this all day mm. and sounds great yeah yeah i was i was loving life mm. i'm still, still loving life but yeah <laughs> so yeah it was a it was definitely a very welcome transition mm. i've got a question yeah, uh, so so what were some of the things that you were scared of you mean apart from running out of money yeah and the monster under your bed <laughs> um i mean the main thing is running out of money and i guess the regret of, of walking away from a cushy job, mm. even though even though it was was kind of running counter to my purposes, mm-hmm. I kind of wondered: Am I just being an idealistic millennial, or um, is this like am I am I living in reality? Like, it, can can I can I be so idealistic and and just like, want a job that's more meaningful? Mm. Even though there's this job over here that I don't like, it's not aligned with my purposes. But the work's pretty easy. I'm getting paid really well. Maybe maybe I just kind of stick around here and offset the harm I'm causing by putting huge, huge amounts of money into into a, a cause that, that that is funding constrained. Right. I, I did think Earning about that. Earning to give. Earning to give, that's right, yeah. Right. So, but that wouldn't have satisfied you, is what you're saying? That's That, that was my feeling at the time, definitely, yeah. Is, has that changed? <laughs> I definitely don't regret where I am now, okay. yeah. Is there part of you as well, seems like you really love learning, you were saying that the work was really easy, were you feeling intellectually understimulated as well? It's hard to say, because the thing is, I was learning a, a couple of months before I um, made the decision to leave. I was kind of st- a bit stagnant, mm. but then a bunch of key personnel left, and then I had to learn very quickly how <laughs> to make decisions. Some some decisions that I was making was like moving a million dollars around. Like I remember one transaction I was looking at, and I had to like modify the status on it and stuff. It was like it was for a million dollars to like one of our suppliers, and so I had to learn very quickly how to kind of try and do these things safely. Mm. So it was definitely a learning experience there, but it wasn't really in terms of the skills that I wanted, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. Um, so towards the end, it wasn't boring. Mm. Every day was very stressful. <laughs> uh, but in the end, it was kind of stress in service of something that I didn't believe in. Right. And so mm. it's a really bad type of stress, I guess. <laughs> right. So that, that kind of, did that, did that type of stress wear you down in ways that you were emotionally exhausted or...? Yeah, good question. I'm not sure if if I'd say I was emotionally exhausted. I guess it was more just kind of the feeling of kind of running against the tide almost because I want to I wanna make a difference in the world, but I'm working for this company that is kind of acting in a way that isn't, I guess, in the best interest of the world. It's kind of in the interest of like making a buck. Mm. And they um, weren't financing Teslas or anything any kind of green I think, vehicles? I think they might have been financed. I think, I can't okay. remember if they had it. I think they did have a Tesla or two on their fleet, maybe. Okay. But. Uh, or two out of the hundreds of thousands or however many they had. <laughs> possibly, possibly, I don't know. I kind of feel like even if they had like 50 Teslas, mm. like 50% Teslas, like I'm not even sure if I'd stay then. Mm. I think I think it's, it's kind of, there's, there's a few things that I don't want to go into. I don't want to go into like all the reasons that I left because in, in the end, they, they treated me pretty well, so. Mm. And 
I mean, I stayed there for four and a half years, so it couldn't have been that bad, right? <laughs> yeah. Cool. Can you go into a bit more detail about your learning journey? Because for some people, having the whole week with no structure at all, it might be a recipe for playing PlayStation all day. <laughs> yeah. How did you organise structure? <laughs> what were the best tactics that you had? If, if only this was in video, you'd be able to see the very accusing stare that Jeremy gave me when he said to play PlayStation all day. <laughs> so I guess the, the main thing that kept me on track was that I had to make this work because mm. I had no safety net, really. Right. It was just basically me and my savings, and that's, that's it. Mm. And so I think also because I'm a pretty risk-averse person, you wouldn't think so given this, this decision, but I actually did a lot of thinking about it before I actually had taken a week off on two separate occasions to kind of meditate on the decision. Mm. And so it was a very thought out decision, mm. but also I kind of feel like I had built the fear into it mm. as, as a feature to, right. to, to this, to this setup to make sure that I actually got my ass in the gear and made it, made it happen. Mm. So there was no way that I was really going to be able to like, I could have like started the morning with playing video games but I don't think I would have enjoyed it much. I would have just been feeling like I should be doing something else. Mm. That's it. I still played video games at night, but <laughs> I, I pretty much kind of... You earned it first. I earned it first, yeah. So initially, I set myself a goal of six hours of deep work every day. Mm-hmm. Then about, I think, a month into it, I ramped that up to eight weeks because I didn't think I was, I was making progress quickly enough. Eight hours a day? Eight hours a day, yep. Right. Sorry, That's quite a lot. Eight yeah. hours of deep work. Per it day. is, yeah, yeah. Do you do you think you were able to achieve that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind what, of I kind of gamified, and I was there I, a metric? I tracked my time. So. Okay, so you, what about how how did you, how did you track like deep work? The, the depth of it. Yeah. It's basically in in the beginning, I was so militant that uh, I have to sit at my desk and start the timer and get into work. There's no changing the music. There's no. Uh, getting up and getting a glass of water. No it's, going to the toilet. No going to the toilet. But basically, that's that's it. And then sit sit down and concentrate for 50 minutes. And so that's pretty much it. So when sorry, I should also say so it's not actually eight hours of deep work. It's kind of like um, eight blocks of 50 minutes. So right. and then like 10 minute breaks in between. Mm-hmm. Sure, that makes sense. Still a huge amount because that works out to be seven hours minutes. 20 minutes. Mm. Seven hours 20 minutes a day. Yeah. Mm. And were you following a particular structure? How did you plan your learning process? I was going through the data science specialization through Michigan. So mm. they had a basic kind of, I don't know what you call it, like data wrangling course, which is to kind of get you up to speed with pandas mm. and a bit of NumPy as well. Mm. Then there's a data visualization as a second module. Mm. The third module was machine learning, basic machine learning. Mm. The fourth one was text mining, and the fifth one was applied social network analysis. Mm. So the idea was I would split my time between doing doing the, that coursework and also trying to build up my portfolio. Mm. Then as I started getting a little bit more aggressive with applying for jobs, I kind of tailored what I was working on to what I was seeing, mm. what I was seeing requested in job advertisements. Right. There, there, was, there were certain things that weren't covered in my syllabus, and I'd basically deprioritize the coursework in order to kind of go after that stuff so that mm. it would kind of look a, a bit more impressive in the, in the portfolio. Mm. So are you, are you saying that the coursework was perhaps maybe not as practical or relevant to the job applications that you were looking at? 
yeah, that's. I, I guess so. Like applied text mining is probably fairly useful in terms of requirements for NLP. I always keep mixing up my. <laughs> and app. we're not talking about neurolinguistic exactly, programming. Exactly, I'm going to say neurolinguistic programming, <laughs> uh, natural language processing. So a lot of jobs seem to be asking for that. At the time, though, I had moved on to applied social network analysis, and not many jobs are asking for that. Though it's fascinating, a mm. fascinating area. Mm. Was that the underage drinking project? Did that involve? No, the um, the underage drinking project was actually motivated by. So I'd seen a job ad for. Is it um, Hello, Hello Sunday Morning? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which we had Will Child. So that's that right. You had Will Child. That's it. Yeah. I basically wanted to build a portfolio piece to show my the way my skills could apply to the domain of alcohol abuse and, right. and stuff. So that's kind of why I went to that to portfolio piece. Hmm. So I really wish I could remember what that what that um, piece was. It was something to do with um, dashboards and interactive dashboards. Oh, that's right. It was building a data pipeline. So, oh, mm. um, so I remember a job ad was asking about experience with data pipelines. So um, this was kind of going from a Kaggle data set to a notebook that I was serving some, somewhere else. And it was something to do with like Denver police, because like Denver, Denver police had like an open data set. Mm. Uh, Denver police like traffic stops or something like that. And right. it would just kind of update every day and mm. run, run through it very primitive pipeline mm. and so yeah that's something I kind of prioritized that wasn't really on my syllabus mm. but I thought it would be good in my portfolio. Mm. Yeah you, you've mentioned in previous talks that often people who do boot camps they don't really do the data engineering side of it and they assume that all the data is clean. Yeah. That's it yeah that's it. Uh, how about how did you use you, you seem very big on Zettel Custom and <laughs> You love your Anki spaced repetition. How did that come into your learning journey? Slipbox. Zetelkasten, <laughs> um, is it? I, I, I know how to pronounce it. Um, but that's, that's very new. So that's, that, that's only coming like the past month or so, month, okay. month or two. But back then, Anki did feature very heavily in my learning journey, especially... So when I when I taken Andrew Ng's course, mm. the very next course I did was this course called Learning How to Learn, oh, which okay. is you did it Barbara then. Oakley's course, mm. and that was a real game changer in terms of, as the name suggests, learning how to learn. So, mm. and it introduced to me the concept of space repetition and mm. and flashcards, mm. and so a lot of the machine learning and data science concepts I I kind of tried to turn into a flashcard and get on that space repetition type program. Mm. And I think it's difficult to say like how much it's helped, but I kind of feel like I'm more fluent because of it. Mm -hmm. mm. How many how many cards would you create for the machine learning stuff? As in like per week or something like that? Or just in a deck. Like, did you have like one full deck? <laughs> I, I can tell you how many cards are in my, in my uh, data science deck. Um, and we know that Tuesday is going to be a big day for your revision. <laughs> How big your deck make? <laughs> <laughs> so there are. This is why we we need some female co-hosts to keep the <laughs> keep the jokes PC. It's not the size of your deck that counts. So nine hundred and eighty-one cards in the data science Oof. data science deck. But over what time period? That would be probably maybe from early twenty eighteen, late twenty seventeen, maybe. To today. Yeah. Oh, so you're still adding. Yeah. Oh yeah, still adding. Learning never stops in data science. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. And you're now doing a course in C. Are you still continuing with that? 
Yep. Is that does that go into your data science deck as well? It does. It actually into your data science deck. It does, yeah. Oh. So like I mean, data science for me is, I mean, because data science is just like so many things, right? It touches on kind of software engineering, um, machine learning, mathematics, data visualization, data analysis. I kind of feel like data science is a bit of a catch-all bucket for just kind of working with data. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. C seems a bit different. Like, yeah. what, what was your intention of putting it into the data science? I mean, maybe it doesn't really matter. It's... Yeah, I guess wasn't a huge amount of intention behind it. I guess it's kind of, it's technical. It's a lot of things in my data science deck are technical. So. Mm. But I do have a, I have tagged them as, as just like C. So like, for instance, because I find the C concepts a lot more difficult than most of the stuff that's in the data science deck. So mm. Pointers and all of that. Pointers and all that, yeah. Mm. Const. Pointers, they're in either. Yeah. So I can basically create a temporary deck to basically say, just show me all the C cards oh, that, gotcha. that come due. And so can essentially kind of push them up the push them up the priority list. Yeah, cool. What advice would you give for other people? I mean, data scientist is the sexiest job of the 21st century, apparently. How replicatable is your experience? Because you already knew some SQL, you'd been doing some Selenium programming, things like that. What threshold would other people need if they had no programming background to get where you are? Yeah, good question. What threshold? As in... What would they? What pre-learning would they need? Would they need eighteen months instead of six months, for example, yeah, if they followed the same question. journey as you? Good question. Well, don't forget, there's people a lot more clever than I am as well. So yeah, they might be able to <laughs> no. do in three, right? So, I think so. It's kind of like what you're at square one. <coughs> what do you do? What do you do tomorrow? Kind of is that what you're mm. asking? Yeah. Yeah, I think. You see, I'm not a big fan of boot camps because I kind of feel like they tend to give you a bit of a toy project and it's not really applicable to the real world. Mm. Full disclosure, never never really been on a boot camp before, um, but it seems it seems like that's the case. Hmm. Happy for someone to tell me otherwise, definitely. John? <laughs> um, so, well, I haven't done a data science one, but yeah, the one I did was, that was good. Yeah. yeah. To get foot in the door, mm-hmm. yeah. your basic skills, yeah. Um, I, there was still a lot that I felt, still a lot that I felt like that I was missing, like, and that I wanted personally, the theoretical stuff, hmm. which was important to me to give me like a deeper understanding foundation for what we were doing and why we were doing certain things. Hmm. But yeah, the technical skills, yeah, we, I think they were, it was covered quite well and working together and various processes, yeah, that we, um, that we learned. And uh, yeah, and Jeremy said I was mostly, mostly ready. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was pretty impressed compared to after six months. Compared to, I would not name <laughs> <laughs> another, another uh, boot camp provider. Yeah. And what, do you think it was easier for you? I mean, you probably would have been doing the equivalent of eight hours of deep work when you were at the boot camp, because I hear sometimes the students were there until midnight. So mm. you were probably putting in the same amount of time. Do you think it's easier if you've got a peer group around you and you've got teachers compared to what, what Joey did? Mm. For me, maybe it wasn't easier. I mean, it was definitely yeah, good to have like a peer group and yeah, we all got along and it was friendly. Mm. But I guess a part of me, because I was 35 when I did it, mm. I guess I was, I was slightly insecure about being that age and compared to like a lot of the, the younger people who were doing it. Mm. So I was like insecure with my skills and I guess I had high standards as, as to what I wanted to achieve. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was still, it was still um, very helpful and yeah, I still like learned a lot and yeah, I was able to not let that get in the way of learning. Uh, and I did, um, I did a little bit of, uh, work beforehand 
to like prepare myself for the course, but unfortunately it wasn't appropriate. Like I was uh, learning uh, computer science. I was learning like C in the CS50 uh, Harvard Harvard computer science course. Mm. But um, yeah, that was probably not the good idea to do that because then we are doing like Ruby on Rails and right. HTML and CSS and all that kind of Quite stuff. Different. Very different, yeah, yeah. So it didn't yeah. seem appropriate. Mm. Yeah. So there you go. That, that is the value of a boot camp. <laughs> um, yeah, so... But it also costs a lot of money and that would have probably wiped out half your runway if you'd done a boot camp. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Oh, and sorry, and, and the, one of the, be- the, the better things about this particular boot camp was doing a internship mm. so that it was good to get like practical on-the-job experience, mm. uh, doing like scrum and working with other people and getting like uh, requirements from the people we're working with and you know trying trying to sort of do that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and uh, and then we got like a, a diploma like a government credit diploma and so yeah it was there was like lots of benefits to doing this one but it was mm-hmm. yeah quite expensive yeah uh, but it was definitely definitely worth it like it's definitely like the best decision I, I made mm-hmm. uh, at that point in my life yeah so I get like sound, sounds like a very uh, very good option I guess mm-hmm. Go, going to boot camp mm-hmm. I get I guess um, so. You're kind of asking what you kind of do as the first step. Mm. If if data science is something that interests you, or if you want to see if data science is something that will interest you, I think it's a fairly a fairly inexpensive test to try and seek out like a publicly available data set because there's so many around these days, mm. and see if there's a data set that interests you, mm-hmm. and then just kind of use the the tools that are available if you're planning on using Python get pandas installed and then just slice the data in different ways, visualize it, see whether, because essentially like a lot of, a lot of being a data scientist in the field, my experience and from what I read as well, a lot of people who are employed as data science, their experience is on the early end of the pipeline, which is basically the data cleaning. Data janitors. The data janitors, exactly. (laughs) We're We're mainly data janitors. Um, that, that's kind of been my experience. That seems to be like where most of the value is provided. Hmm. If if you're not like an ML researcher or something like that, right? If you're if you're kind of in in the field um, working on a machine learning pipeline, the pipeline that needs the most amount of care is kind of the early part of it. Mm-hmm. The the integration to the client system, how the data gets cleansed on on the way through, and all the transformations that you apply to kind of I guess basically make sure that the data is in the best, the most optimized version of itself before it hits the algorithm mm. and I mean of course there's a lot of kind of tuning that you can do when it comes to the actual algorithm itself mm-hmm. but it seems like most of the big levers are before you actually hit the point right because if your data is crap it doesn't matter how optimized your algorithm is mm. it's just kind of crap in crap out crap in crap out that's it so mm. there's a lot of a lot of work to polish the crap <laughs> before it polish the turd polish the turd that's right mm. so Sorry, I think I, I think I lost my train of thought. We we're talking about. Well, I want to change the, the topic. Anyway. Okay, excellent. <laughs> what's next? Your you, you've polished a lot of turds. What's, <laughs> what's next in your in your data science journey? What's your plan for the next five years? <laughs> <laughs> and don't use the family guideline. <laughs> yeah, I I really like to work at a kind of a cha- charity evaluator. I reckon kind of like an animal charity evaluator type type deal. A really kind of meta, a, a place that a place that analyzes the effectiveness of charities, mm. which I think would be really interesting. So that because like 
as, as someone that wants to make a contribution and make a difference, I would really like to kind of like definitively know if I want to contribute to, I don't know, nuclear deterrence, mm-hmm. where, where's the best place to put my money for that? Mm. And so, like, I mean, you have, you have places like GiveWell and yep. um, Animal Charity Evaluators, but they, they're kind of related to a very specific niche. Mm. And so I'd probably like to work at any of those companies as well. Like, that would be pretty good too. Right? If you're hearing this and you want to hire someone smart. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. <laughs> so, yeah, like the idea of analyzing charity effectiveness mm. really, really appeals to me. Mm-hmm. So probably somewhere there. But I think I still got a lot of things to learn before I do that so hmm. any final questions John nope <laughs> okay I want to give Joey an opportunity to shout out one of his side projects as well he's working on a very colourful project <laughs> so this is the colouring book I do yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right so yeah I am in the middle of creating a colouring book that is its theme is around I guess the inner the inner world of factory farmed animals mm-hmm. and so my intention is basically to give people a a more edifying pastime, to, uh, a bit of a break from social media, and to experience the satisfaction of of coloring something in and seeing something at the end that that looks really nice, and hopefully to kind of raise awareness of factory that factory farmed animals are more than just objects that we can make use of, and hopefully raise a bit more compassion towards these creatures. And I will testify that the animals look very cute. <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. <laughs> Thanks very much, Joey, for taking part. We'll include some of the resources that Joey mentioned and also a link to an article that he has on his blog about his decision journaling process because I found that very useful personally and maybe some of the other tools that he used and the courses that he did. Thanks a lot for being a guest. Thanks, Joey. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Thanks Jeremy. Huzzah! Huzzah!